Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Several months ago now, at least for many of us, our normal routines fell apart. Those routines could have been at home, at work, maybe both. And we talk a lot as a society about how these sorts of drastic shifts have affected our kids and our wallets and our social lives. But what are they doing to our bodies? And is there a notable biological impact? I have no doubt that that's true. And then exactly how the long-term effects of that are going to be something interesting that I think a number of scientists are already pursuing by taking data now and then following that in the long term. Rebecca Spencer is a professor of psychological and brain sciences at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And the lasting pandemic-related shift that she's talking about concerns one of the most essential and misunderstood aspects of staying healthy, sleep. And she's not the only scientist who has noticed weird stuff going on with us. Oh, I think people are having a lot of trouble sleeping. I find that people are talking more about biphasic sleep, which is, you know, where you wake up in the middle of the night and are awake for a little while and then you go back to sleep. Amita Sagal also studies sleep. She's a molecular biologist at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. Sagal worries about the long-term impact of what's happening to us during the pandemic and to our internal clocks. Because even though you might sometimes feel like you're chained to your alarm clock or to your cell phone clock or to the clock on the microwave, those are not actually the most important clocks we're chained to. So our bodies know what time it is. Like even if we didn't have the clock on the microwave or the alarm clock, there are clocks within us. So like if you take humans and these experiments have been done, you know, where you take them away from all cycling cues in the environment, they still have rhythms because there are clocks within us. There are internal clocks. But here's the most amazing part of all this. Well, there's actually two amazing parts. So the first is that how healthy we are is not a static thing. It changes depending on the time of day. But the truth of the matter is that everything in our physiology is rhythmic. It changes over the course of the day-night cycle. So we, for instance, you know, have different body temperature in the morning and evening. We usually have different blood pressure. A lot of the hormones that you hear about, things like, you know, you're hearing about dexamethasone treatment for COVID. And then, of course, you know, there's cortisol, there's insulin. All those things are different at different times of day. And people are, are actually not aware of that. And it's because we have these clocks within us. The second amazing aspect of these internal clocks is that different parts of the body have different clocks. So the clock in the liver, for instance, is driving cholesterol metabolism and glucose metabolism with a 24-hour rhythm. And so one of the things that, that, you know, people, I guess, need to also be aware of is if you eat at the wrong time of day, your liver clock is going to set its timing according to when you eat. But your brain clock, which is controlling sleep, is going with the time of the light-dark cycle. Sagal says... Eating in the middle of the night, for example, can create a kind of self-imposed jet lag. So your brain can see what time it is by looking at when it's dark and light. But your liver is operating on a different schedule, and it's expecting food in the middle of the night. Both Spencer and Sagal believe the stress of the pandemic is causing big changes to our sleep schedules and to our internal clocks. 
which will have health impacts, and we'll get to some of those. We'll also look at how sleep impacts our health more generally, and our weight, and our memory. But for a minute, let's talk about kids. So kids' lives have largely been upended since March. For many, this has meant going from relatively little screen time every day to several hours, sometimes because parents just need to get work done, and sometimes because kids are increasingly getting their education through screens. Rebecca Spencer's lab has done work on kids and screen time, and they've found kids who spend more time in front of screens tend to sleep noticeably less. So a big societal shift towards screens, that could have some major consequences down the road. Through just screen time alone, whether it's our work that we're doing or schoolwork of our adolescents, just the light that is being directly shown at our eyes at all hours of the day, that's certainly stimulating and prevents sleep from coming on when it's time towards the end of the day. So you've got a lot of that light shining at you all during the day, which might be good for alerting during early in the day. But as you have that light exposure going late in the day, for a parent, it might be a late Zoom meeting. For a mm-hmm. child, it might be more of their entertainment type screen time. That light is when it's getting closer to your sleep, when you actually want to have dim lighting to promote sleep. So that's one mechanism. For the kids that are turning to screen time for merely entertainment, the problem is the entertainment itself is also stimulating. So we know that kids, when um, watching TV with less attendance, so getting to choose on their own what to watch, they're more apt mm-hmm. to choose adult-based content. And we know that that's too stimulating for their minds even during the daytime, let alone to take on that kind of content close to bedtime. So it's the content as well that is probably disturbing their sleep. And so we do see that the kids that are accessing screens have worse sleep, particularly if those screens are in their rooms where they get to have more say over the content, and particularly Mm. when they use those screens close to when they should be going to bed. We see less overall sleep and later sleep onset times. And by the way, do we know the ultimate effect of that? So, okay, so if you've got a kid who watches a lot more television than this other kid, and, you know, so maybe they get, uh, the kid who watches a lot of television gets eight hours of sleep versus the kid who watches no television gets... 10, let's pretend. Do we know what the ultimate effect of that is? Does the kid who get less sleep, are they sicker? Are they, do they have any issues? Certainly from our own work, we see that there's effects on memory and cognition. So that's where our focus has okay. been. And we do see that they have poorer executive functions, um, working memory, inhibitory control, and they also have poorer learning capacity. So what they learned in the morning, they're more apt to forget if they um, had poor sleep. There's other research that certainly speaks to the immune effects, that it should be worse on their immune system. And overall, they're less healthy, particularly if that was a cumulative behavior for them. Amita, does it worry you that we might have 50 million kids? I mean, something like that number was actually sent home from school in March that are going from low screen time to potentially five, eight hours of screen time a day, just as somebody, whether you're thinking about the light or the stimulus, does that worry you at all? Oh, it worries me a lot. So a large part of my research, my career has been devoted to the study of circadian rhythms, right? Mechanisms that drive those. And we know that those are critical as is, you know, 
a certain amount of sleep in maintaining health. And when I say health, I mean cognition, as, as Rebecca referred to, even metabolic activity. It's really important. Even, even things like vision, you know, are impacted hmm. by circadian clocks. So what you really need is, you know, very well kind of delineated waking hours when there's daylight and then a dark night when you're sleeping. And a lot of that has been affected by the pandemic. I mean, a lot of that, quite honestly, is an issue even in modern civilization in the absence of the pandemic. So bottom line is that kids these days are not getting enough sunlight during the day and they're not yeah. getting enough dark at night. And we've actually published on how this can even increase the incidence of uh, myopia. Because you really need those, you know, very black and white entrainment cues from the environment and you need to be exposing yourself to that. So that's an issue. And the screens that the, the kids are spending a lot of time on typically are imparting the kind of light that is the circadian system and within us is very sensitive to. And so, you know, if, if they're looking at those screens during daylight hours, uh, as Rebecca pointed out, it's not nearly as bad as if they're looking at those screens later in the night, because that's the time they're supposed to be seeing dark. So this is a problem anyway in society that we're not right. allowing ourselves to be very rhythmic. And the pandemic has just made it that much worse. Myopia is nearsightedness, right? Yes. Um, Rebecca, can you talk a little bit about, so we've talked about this kind of circadian rhythm. Um, you've looked a little bit at uh, how different people deal with sleep at different ages, like young children, older people. Can, can you just talk a little bit about how does sleep, how does it change as we age and like what we need and what we should have and that sort of thing? Sure. Um, so we look at sleep, everything from infants to older adults, and there's some obvious changes across that time span. Um, from our infants, even into childhood, you have a big reduction in how much sleep a child gets. But another thing that's really interesting down at that end of the lifespan is how variable sleep is. So while one infant could only need 12 to 14 hours of sleep in a day, other infants need 18 hours of sleep. So big ranges of what is be wow. deemed okay. right sleep. As you get into childhood, of course, there's less sleep. And the other thing that changes is those naps go away. So naps that occur regularly in the middle of the day for infants in early childhood, they go away. And we tend to try to make sure they go away as the kids enter school around five years old. And then sleep goes down as the child ages. And what's common in adolescent is not how long it is. It's about what time sleep is occurring, that those adolescents want to go to bed later um, at night than almost early in the morning than we would like them to. And as you get into older adulthood, what happens is we see reduced sleep time, but we also see sleep occurring earlier. So the more common experience, which is opposite of adolescence, is that an older adult wants to fall asleep earlier than oh, behavior and society might want them to. Um, so okay. uh, they start eating dinner earlier, but that's because they're also going to fall asleep earlier. So that's common as you see older adults sleeping, but you also see naps sometimes uh, return in older adults as well. So you see not only from how long they're sleeping, but when sleep is occurring. Is it occurring during the day? Is it occurring at night? And then what time during the night? All of that shifts as we look across the lifespan. Is it generally, 
you know, I, I mean, people will often say like, oh, my kid missed a nap or whatever. They're they're a mess. Is it generally helpful? I mean, for kids, but also for other people like to nap. Yeah. So actually, we've shown that naps are useful for everybody. They're across across the lifespan. We see a benefit okay. of naps. They're beneficial for memory. They're beneficial for our executive function, our attention span. What changes is how bad is staying awake. And so in those little kids that nap habitually, they see more damage to their memories if they stay awake during nap time. And so that's what's critical okay. is just how much that nap is essential. We think that in the, you know, the older child, the adult brain, they can hold on to that information for longer before they have to download the information. So they can hold on to that information all day before they need to download that information overnight versus the smaller child with a less mature brain needs to download that information more frequently. And that download is what's happening during those daytime naps. So, so I, I totally agree with uh, Rebecca. Yes, uh, sleep need, you know, varies a lot uh, from person to person. This is absolutely the case in humans, in animals. I should say I am a big believer in uh, afternoon naps. I feel like humans okay. were intended to take afternoon siestas. Do and you take an afternoon nap? <laughs> unfortunately, no. My work doesn't allow it. <laughs> but okay, just I checking. really would like to. Um, okay. And there is a reason that the coffee carts have so much business in the afternoon. Mm. You know, it's the what we call the postprandial dip, like right after lunchtime right. is when you get that dip. Um, the other thing I wanted to comment on is the change in sleep over lifetime which we, you know, know happens in humans and younger kids need much more sleep. And as adults, you need less, you typically. Um, we see that in all the animal models also. And so, you know, it's true in rodents and mice and rats. And we see this in flies where they sleep a lot more when they're young. And mm. we've actually found that that sleep is important for brain development so in other words, if you don't let them sleep when they're young and, you know, in the animal models, we can deprive them of sleep, their behavior is affected when they are older. Hmm. This is a good place to pause. When we come back, we're going to talk about how sleep affects your weight and whether being a morning person or a night person, is that in our heads or is it actually backed up by science? I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Amita Sagel from the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine and Rebecca Spencer from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. You can read more about their research and the science of sleep at our website, including a video from our GBH colleagues at NOVA on how sleep helps kids learn words. That's all at innovationhub.org. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sleep is something we all do, but we mostly don't think much about. Though over the past few months, many people have found they're getting considerably more or less sleep than normal. And that can change your life a lot. Those who study sleep say that sleep is a crucial and often ignored aspect of health. So what should we be aiming for when it comes to sleep? I don't know. Um, but I think we as a society are getting less sleep now than we should be getting. 
Amita Sagal is a molecular biologist at the University of Pennsylvania. She says it's hard to know how much, or even how, humans were designed to sleep, and everybody varies somewhat. If you study both history and groups of people who don't live in industrialized societies, you find we may actually be designed to go to sleep quite early, get up in the middle of the night, be awake for a bit, and then go back to sleep. Rebecca Spencer, a neuroscientist at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, says researchers sometimes find folks who will say, yeah, that's how they sleep. We actually had one um, gentleman who walks down to the donut shop in the middle of the night because he doesn't want to disturb his wife. (laughs) And then he goes back to sleep. And they've really, in some sense, stabilized this sleep pattern. Spencer says one thing that's clear to her is that the light we're exposed to in the modern world isn't really helping us out. We weren't supposed to have lights that can keep us up in um, all hours of the evening. We weren't supposed to have Mm -hmm. the light to be able to keep our adolescents on a screen till 1 a.m., which certainly influences when sleep is taking place and how quickly your sleep can onset given that late night exposure. Do we have any sense of um, sleep and the aging process? Like, do people age faster if they get less sleep, you know, versus people who get plenty of sleep? So, um, yes, it is the case that short and long sleep are, you know, associated with reduced lifespan. There's like a bell-shaped curve. A lot of our studies have been done with animal models that sleep less, and almost all of them are short-lived. Okay. And so it does seem to be the case that sleep deprivation hastens the aging process, if you will, or increases mortality. And there are some studies now that have started to look at what it is that, you know, accounts for the increased mortality. The other thing I would mention is that with increasing age, sleep-wake cycles break down. So you don't quite, you know, some older people might have this biphasic pattern. Again, we see that in our animals where with increasing age, Like, let's say this animal typically sleeps at night like we do and not during the day or less during the day, I should say, you know, there is a nap. What happens with age is that there is much more awakening at night and there is more daytime sleep and sleepiness. So it becomes very fragmented and there are, you know, genetic manipulations you can do that kind of mimic that effect of aging earlier in life. And those animals seem to be short-lived. So there is a relationship. There's a common, I think, um, I don't know, sort of perception that there are such things as morning people and night people. I I don't know if that's just something that, you know, uh, we believe, but there's actually no, you know, no real logic behind it or whether you think, yeah, no, there's, there's truth to that. There is definitely truth to that. There is, um, it's well, actually, yeah, yep, yep, a lot of truth to that. So in the circadian rhythm field, we call them owls and larks. Okay. And it's a real thing. So in a population in general, there are going to be people who are more functional in the morning. Those are the larks and people who are more functional in the evening. Those are the owls. People have even done studies of to see whether larks versus owls are, you know, more sensitive to sleep deprivation. So that kind of work has been done. And people have tried to get at the genetic basis of it. So it turns out that, you know, if you are just in general a little bit of a late person, 
the genetic basis of that is not quite as well understood because those are sort of you're within the normal range, but you know, towards one end of it, let's say. But then there are people who are extreme delayed or extreme advanced. And those then are called syndromes. So there's something called advanced sleep phase syndrome or ASPS. And then there's something called delayed sleep phase syndrome or DSPS. So ASPS, for instance, would be people who, you know, go to sleep at like 7 p.m., wake up at 3 a.m. And this runs in families. So we know it's genetic. Yeah, it runs in families. So we know it's genetic. And some of the genes have been identified. So would you say that there are people, when I think of myself, I don't think I'm either super, uh, I'm not like a super early morning person, but I'm not like, I don't stay up till 2 a.m. I was never that person either. Right. Are there people who just kind of exist in the middle and they aren't very pronounced either way? Sure, sure. But I I would say, too, that there is a, you know, my husband is very much a late person, right? And I would say, oh, I'm early. And he'd be like, no, you're not, because, you know, I don't wake up super early. And I said, well, I don't wake up super early because I need a lot of sleep. There's a reason I study sleep. Um, And so, uh, (laughs) but I know that I am more functional in the morning, Uh than I am at night, you know, I mean, as it gets to be like 11 p.m., like, don't try having like an, you know, intellectual conversation with me. (laughs) Okay, so it doesn't have to be that you wake up at 5 a.m., but it might be that you do your best work, let's say, before noon. I I like to think of it that way. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Rebecca, was there anything you wanted to say about this whole night people, morning people conversation? No, I mean, other than that, this is certainly maintained. We see kids that also fall across the spectrum of Mm. some that tend to go to bed earlier and tend to go to bed later. And I think as far as development goes, it can be a bit of a source of conflict between the child and the parent because we have expectations from pediatricians or friends as to when your child should go to bed. But they're not adjusted to your child's own biological rhythm. And of course, we're also trying to fit them within societal expectations. So that variation between larks and owls is really important to us societally. And I'm not sure the solution to it, but it certainly influences how much sleep a child is going to get. I wonder this from either of you, but... You know, one of the real issues that we uh, deal with in terms of health in in the U.S. is the issue of um, obesity, which has been, you know, increasing over the last several decades. And I I just wonder if you think sleep um, is at all connected. Uh, We talked before about like the liver has a clock, the pancreas has a clock. Are sleep and weight connected um, in ways that we are not aware of enough, perhaps. Very much so. Very much so. So first of all, I guess I would start with talking about the the rhythm. And so as I mentioned, you know, liver will be driving your Mm. cholesterol and glucose metabolism to occur in a cycle. And if you disrupt that cycle, you are more susceptible to all these metabolic syndromes. In fact, one of the major functions of the circadian clock is to control metabolic activity. And so that metabolic activity, like, you know, really goes awry when you don't have proper circadian control. So that's on one level where having like a good, you know, rhythm in your body functions and good sleep, wake, exposing yourself to light during the day and dark at night is important. 
But then there's also the issue of the amount of sleeps, right? So it's not just the, the rhythmic pattern. It's also the amount of sleep that's important. And loss of sleep is also associated with metabolic problems, uh, with diabetes, okay. with obesity, with metabolic syndrome. And we've actually done experiments ourselves where we've sleep-restricted humans. So not total sleep deprivation. You know, some studies are just don't let them sleep at night at all. We've done what is more of a real-world scenario where we let people sleep for four hours a night for five nights. And then we look at their blood to see how their metabolic activity is affected, and we find signs of insulin resistance. Huh. Okay. So as Americans sleep less, which I think has also happened over the last few decades, the, the commensurate rise in maybe obesity, these things are related. They're sort of two sides of the same thing. Very much so. I think it's a okay. huge issue that's not acknowledged enough. I'll ask a couple of questions for you, both of you, um, but I'll just start with you, um, Rebecca, on this one. Um, I wonder, what do each of you wish that uh, the general public understood about sleep, but but they don't? Oh, that's a great, great question. Um, I think that there's now appreciation that sleep is important, but I think the ways to get good sleep are probably where we're currently lacking. So I think okay. that there's been more of societal talk about how sleep is important. Sleep is associated with accidents you hear about in the news and more and more parents are recognizing the push for delayed school start time. But I think the struggle now is to understand what good sleep habits are, what are those things that we need to do to get better sleep and those things being this conversation that we're having about light, the types of environment we should set up. But probably the other important thing is to remember that you need a consistent sleep schedule. So we think that we can stay up late on weekends and still be ready to fall asleep on a Sunday night and be ready to go to school on a Monday morning. Those things aren't going to align. You need okay. to maintain a consistent sleep rhythm in order to have good sleep overall. So it's that broad conversation on what good sleep habits are that help us sleep well that I think is really the next thing that our society needs to appreciate. Hmm. And Amita, is there something that you think people don't realize about sleep that you wish they did? Yeah, so I agree with uh, what Rebecca said. I think there's increasing awareness of, you know, the importance of sleep. I, I still think there are a lot of people out there, though, who think that if they have to give up something, then that should be sleep, right? Mm. And that has to change. I think there needs to be awareness among people that, Controlling your circadian rhythms and having good regular habits with respect to when you eat, when you go to sleep, and getting enough sleep are things that can just promote wellness. It sort of, I think, should be part of primary health care, hmm. and they will help you stay healthy and not get sick. Huh. I, so I also wonder from both of you, and I'll start with Amita here, um, what what do you hope, or like, what question about sleep, sort of big picture question, are you really interested in having solved? It could be something that either you're particularly working on, but it could also just be a bigger question that you're hoping that you see in the next few years, like this this question answered. Yes. So uh, for my lab, actually, you know, is in, very interested in this and working on it is what is it that happens during sleep that makes it restorative? 
So we know people will tell you that, you know, sleep helps you uh, learn better. And I think that, you know, Rebecca talked about the cognitive consequences of sleep loss. And that's true. And that's, again, something we see across animals, all animals, humans, you don't sleep enough, you don't learn as well, many tasks. And but we're interested in what is it that's happening in the brain during sleep that is helping learning and helping you perform all those other functions better. Right, right. And Rebecca, is there some a big question that you would like to just know the answer to about sleep that you don't right now? Right. I actually I would give a really similar answer to Amita to understand how sleep is playing a role in our cognitive functions. But we're also interested in how that function interacts with sleep pressure. So how does that amount that we're learning drive when we sleep. So it's interesting that Amita also pointed out that just how much you're exposed to or how much you're learning can change your amount of sleep. And we think that that actually contributes to sleep pressure. So why does a child need to nap in the middle of the day? When are they ready to grow out of naps? We actually think comes down to how much information the brain is, is collecting and how frequently it needs to be unloaded. And that's a really unique kind of perspective on sleep regulation is that it actually has something to do with our Cognition. So that's really the direction that we're going and we're being brave and putting little kids into an MRI to understand their brain <laughs> development as it relates to their development of their sleep. Rebecca Spencer is a professor of psychological and brain sciences at UMass Amherst. Amita Sagal is a molecular biologist and chronobiologist in the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks so much to both of you for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.